Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 19, Leviticus chapters 12 and 13. Well, we finished up the very difficult issue of kosher eating last week, and we moved into preparations for Leviticus chapter 12. But unfortunately, we find ourselves out of the frying pan right into the fire. Because we're going to face now the matter of clean and unclean called ritual purity. And sometimes in the Bible, in place of the terms clean and unclean, we'll see the terms pure and impure. Now, are these just synonyms? Right? Are clean and pure or unclean and impure just two ways of saying the same thing? Not exactly. Pure is the result of avoiding contact and union with the unclean. Impure is the result of coming into contact and union with the unclean. Okay? Another important term associated with all of this is defiled. And defiled means a loss of holiness and a loss of ritual purity. Defiled things bring uncleanness. Now here's an illustration of what I mean. There are these things we call diseases. Viruses, germs, bacteria, etc. They can all cause diseases. If you come into contact with them and you get the disease, then you get sick. But you don't become the disease. If you get the measles, you don't for a time become a measle. But the disease, measles, causes the person to become ill. So in the same way, something, touching something unclean does make, does make you ritually impure, but it doesn't give you the exact properties of that particularly uncleanness which you touched. You don't become that unclean thing. Okay. If you touch a, bit, a dead body, you don't become a dead body yourself. Okay. But touching that dead body does defile you, and so you become ritually impure from the state because the state of that dead body was unclean. And the result of impurity is that you're barred from being in the presence of holiness. Okay. Unclean brings defilement which renders the object or the person impure. Now, knowing that subtle difference between clean and pure, unclean and impure, and their relationship to defilement can help, help us quite a bit as we study the remainder of Leviticus and then on even into the New Testament because it speaks of defilement on quite a number of occasions. Let's, uh, let's read Leviticus 12. Leviticus chapter 12. All of it together. It's a little short chapter. Leviticus chapter 12. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, if a woman conceives and gives birth to a boy, she'll become unclean for seven days with the same uncleanness as in Nidah, 
when she's having her menstrual period. On the eighth day, the baby's foreskin is to be circumcised. She is to wait an additional 33 days to be purified from her blood. She's not to touch any holy thing or come into the sanctuary until the time of her purification is over. But if she gives birth to a girl, she will be unclean for two weeks as in her nidah. And she is to wait another 66 days to be purified from her blood. When the days of her purification are over, whether for a son or for a daughter, she is to bring a lamb in its first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or dove for a sin offering to the entrance to the tent of meeting to the priest. He will offer it before Adonai and make atonement for her. Thus she will be purified from her discharge of blood. Such is the law for a woman who gives birth, whether to a boy or to a girl. If she can't afford a lamb, she's to take two doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. The priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. Okay, chapter 12 is shortened to the point. It deals with the ritual status of a new mother as well as the unborn child, or rather the newborn child. And it tells us that immediately upon childbirth, the mother becomes ritually impure, unclean. If it's a male child, the mother's impurity lasts for 40 days. For a girl baby, the period of uncleanness doubles to 80 days. Utterly no reason is given for the difference in length of time between the two sexes and we're never really given a direct answer anywhere in the scripture for this difference. Now interestingly, those periods of ritual impurity have been divided into stages. The first stage, which is seven days for a boy, 14 days for a girl. The second stage is a bit different than the first and because with the second stage comes a slightly less impure state than for the first 7 or 14 days. And that second stage of lesser impurity is 33 days for a boy, 66 days for a girl. Okay, 33 plus 7 is 40, 66 plus 14 is 80. You get the idea. So the first stage of 7 or 14 days is described as being of the same kind of impurity as for a woman who has entered a period. During this stage, she can have no marital relations with her husband. Anything she has sat or laid upon is deemed to have become impure. And as with anyone who is in an impure state for any reason, she has to stay separate from any holy thing. This means she cannot bring a sacrifice to the temple. She can't touch any sacred thing. Now we're going to get into slightly more detail in chapter 15 about this but the type of impurity transmitted by the new mother is not of a very serious nature usually the item or person that has become impure is only in that state until sundown until the end of the day and the beginning of the new day a little different for the for the mother of the newborn now our rational logical thinking immediately asks Why should a new mother be deemed unclean? Well, since why is irrelevant to most biblical Hebrew thinking, and since we're instead on a search for patterns, and not a series of proofs and scientific or logical reasons, the closest we can get to why is in the fact that the pattern 
For a woman's giving birth, becoming unclean and then regaining her purity, is closely related to the woman's menstrual cycle. And it seems that the whole matter of the cause of the impurity contracted by the new mother is not so much about the baby, but about the associated discharge of blood. As it says in verse 7, And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, male or female. So it is the flow of blood that has made her impure and from which she needs to be cleansed. It's not that she brought new life into the world that caused it. It's this flow of blood. And we're going to find in following lessons that discharges from males or females in certain cases is caused to make that person ritually impure, unclean. And as childbirth creates a discharge of blood and fluid, so does a woman's cycle. So we can see the reason for the pattern relationship between the two. Now, there have been many interesting theories as to why Yehovah would, on the one hand, instruct mankind to be fruitful and multiply and to constantly glorify women who give birth to many children but declare as sad those who are barren and on the other hand declare that the result of both the normal monthly processes that readies a woman to become pregnant and the processes of bringing a new child into existence render that woman into an unclean state ritually impure unable to even approach God I don't even want to take the time to explore these theories with you because after considering them, the reality is that they're all men's theories. To try to connect these biblical purity laws with scientific reasons and health rationales and ancient taboos and all that sort of stuff, none of which is ever discussed in Scripture as the reason for these laws existing. It is in verse 3 that we get this critically important law that it's on the eighth day after birth that a male child was to be circumcised. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant the Jehovah gave to Abraham and therefore says, by doing this, this child is under the covenant. Obviously, the choice of the eighth day coincides in some ways with the mother's ritual purity because the eighth day of the baby boy's life is also the first day of this second stage of the mother's ritual impurity where it becomes a matter of lesser impurity. And there's a lot of symbolism involved with circumcision on the eighth day, but we're going to hold that off a little bit. Now, during the second stage of ritual impurity that commences after seven days, on the eighth day after childbirth for a boy, or after 14 days, therefore on the 15th day for a baby girl, and lasts 33 or 66 days, marital relations between husband and wife can resume. But because the mother remains in even the least degree of impurity, she cannot enter the holy grounds, She can't touch any holy or sacred thing. Now, the exact definition of what constitutes a holy 
or a consecrated or a sacred thing varied a little bit over, over time. And from the teachings, frankly, of one rabbi to another. In general, a holy thing included anything that was going to be offered for sacrifice in the temple. So when the new mother was a common Israelite and she was obligated to participate in regular sacrificial rituals, she could have nothing to do with those sacrificial rituals or the food involved or any procedure at all during that period of uncleanness. But when the new mother was a priest's wife, she was even barred from eating that her husband, the priest's portion, taken from the sacrifice that she otherwise would have been entitled to. Remember, the primary food source for priests and their families were certain specified portions of the animal and grain sacrificial offerings that were offered by the congregation in general. Now, naturally, this didn't mean she was deprived of daily sustenance or had to ration her food during this time. Rather, she, the food she ate simply could not have been previously used as part of the sacrifice. Okay. Priests did have money. Okay. Its primary source coming from certain reparation offerings that required the giving of money in addition to animals. So they were able to buy food and other staple items that they needed. Well, after this either 40 or 80 day period of time of impurity, the new mother was then required to bring two types of sacrifices to the temple to complete this process of regaining her purity. The olah and the hatat. Okay? That is, it was a burnt offering and a purification offering. Now, I'm not going to revisit all these procedures of these two types of offerings. You can refer to earlier lessons in Leviticus if you want a very detailed explanation of them. But I would like to point out that along with that olah sacrifice, it was pretty much automatic that a mincha sacrifice also was offered so really three sacrifices were required of the mother now as concerns this hatat sacrifice the particular purpose for this type of sacrifice the end of the new mother's ritual impurity ceremonies is part of the reason that I subscribe to calling the hatat a purification offering rather than the more typically translated sin offering. Okay. The sin offering rendering for a hatat gives us the wrong impression. It gives us the impression that some type of sin has necessarily been committed and it has to be atoned for. And as I think you're beginning to see, hope you are, uncleanness, ritual impurity, doesn't necessarily involve sin as we think of it. There appears to be no sin laid upon a new mother that made her unclean. Getting pregnant, being pregnant, giving birth, none of that was sinful. Rather, it's the natural and normal discharge of blood accompanying childbirth that made her unclean. The hatat is usually performed as the end act in a series of rituals that takes an impure person back to a state of ritual purity and only occasionally is some defined sin the cause for that ritual impurity in the first place. Now let me take a moment to split a hair with you. 
that I think you're going to find interesting and informative, and I think useful in understanding certain aspects of Yeshua's atoning work in each of our lives. We talked a while back that the normal state for most things is clean, ritually pure. The exceptions in the physical world would be those animals and other things that Yehovah, for his own mysterious reasons, has designated as unclean. Mankind, Gentiles, can become unclean by engaging in certain behaviors. The God principle here is that normally clean things can be defiled and degraded into a state of ritual impurity, uncleanness, by committing unclean acts or contacting unclean objects. Or, clean things can be sanctified, raised up, and made holy by decree from God. But no unclean thing can be elevated directly into a state of holiness, nor can an unclean thing be allowed even in the presence of holiness. Now let me be clear on this because it completely applies to the New Testament. A thing that is unclean can eventually be brought into a state of holiness, but first it has to be brought to like this intermediate state of clean. You can't make the jump from unclean to holy. It's just that a thing that is in an unclean state has to go through these steps. An unclean thing is not eligible to be holy. First, it has to become clean. We get the perfect example of this in Leviticus 12. The new mother is declared by Jehovah to be in a state of uncleanness immediately following childbirth. She may not participate or be part of the regular worship practices of her family or her religious community because she's unclean. And all uncleanness has to be separate from holiness. So a block of time is legislated by Jehovah that she has to wait for this ritual and period to end, either 40 or 80 days. And there is no way to shorten this period of time. There's no shortcut. At the end of this block of time, as we're going to see in subsequent chapters, the new mother will engage in a ritual bath. She will be immersed in a mikvah that officially marks the end of her period of uncleanness. After the time has gone by, and then after she's been immersed... Then she's clean. But she hasn't entered back yet into her previous state of holiness that she had enjoyed immediately before she gave birth. After the waiting period, after the immersion in the mikvah, she's made clean, but she's not quite back to that holy stage yet. It's the sacrifices that will accomplish that. So notice the progression. The new mother is both unclean and as a result of her state of holiness is temporarily, or rather as a result, her state of holiness is temporarily suspended. In order to get back to the state of holiness afforded all Israelites by God, she has to become first ritually clean because she was unclean. When she's clean, now she's authorized to bring a sacrifice to the temple 
that allows her to regain her holy status. There's no shortcuts to this. So, we've learned that it was not that bringing new life into the world was the problem. The baby was not the cause of her impurity. Because as it says in verse 7, it was the discharge of blood from the birthing process that brought on the impurity. And we found that the Torah compares the type and level of impurity for the new mother with the woman who is on her monthly cycle. In both cases, she's unclean for a set period of time. And during that time, she's barred from being in the presence of holiness until that time passes and until she's immersed. Now stay with me now, because try as I might, there's nothing but mere words available to me to explain a spiritual mystery that might seem like a mechanical process, because that's kind of how I've explained it, but it's not. To begin, I want to reiterate in the strongest possible terms that unclean is not a state that a believer in Yeshua faces any longer. Ladies, you do not become ritually impure every month or during childbirth. As a result of your trust in Christ, you remain holy and clean. In fact, as I have explained, by all I can ascertain from Holy Scripture, no believer can actually ever be defiled down into an unclean uh, unclean condition as long as they retain their trust. As long as they remain a believer in God's eyes. Because Yeshua's atoning blood is at work. The, the, The living water that is Christ is flowing over us at every moment purifying us. At every moment. In our temporal world of time and space, Christ's sacrifice on the cross was said to be once and for all. It's a one-time event. In terms of the Torah and the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, one would say that his single sacrificial offering of his own body satisfied all matters where ritual sacrifice was needed for atonement. But, in the spiritual world, there is no time and space. It's as though his sacrifice is just ongoing. It's just going on forever and ever. It's not another and another. It's the same one. Continuing and continuing. Continuing. Endless. Eternal. Now sin, at least in the sense of bad behavior or disobedience or breaking of the Levitical rules and regulations obviously is not at play here in the matter of ritual impurity for the new mother. So we see that we cannot equate the commission of a sin with becoming unclean in every case. But unclean is associated with sinning. Let me explain. In the same way that some non-believers, wonderful, caring, loving, but unsaved people, can seem to be living a nearly perfect life, a model life that I wish I lived sometimes. In fact, even if they did not commit any behavioral sins, their very nature is sinful due to their relationship with Adam and Eve. Christians call this our sin nature. 
And just as the bad behavior, the commission of identifiable transgressions against the Father have to be atoned for, so do our sin natures have to be atoned for. That is why it is said that innocent babies who haven't even had an opportunity to commit a disobedience, disobedience against God are nonetheless in a sinful state because they carry in their natures the results of the fall of our common earthly ancestors, Adam and Eve. It's in this sense where sin and unclean meet. Our sin nature will eventually produce uncleanness. It's not a thing we can really do about it, except to rely on Yeshua's atoning work on our behalf. That's about it. Before Christ, it was the Olah sacrifice, what we typically call the burnt offering, that was designed to atone not for acts of sinful behavior or disobedience, but for the Israelites' sinful and therefore unclean natures. If you recall in our earlier lessons, it was in Leviticus that we first discussed the Olah and Minkah sacrifices, and in fact these sacrifices had nothing to do with committing trespasses against Jehovah. It wasn't until we got to the Hata'at, the Asham, the Seva sacrifices that the Torah even began to deal with sins against God and then the impurity that sin produces. And notice that it is the Olah sacrifice that is required in Leviticus 12 of the new mother. A sacrifice that has nothing to do uh, with atoning for behavior. Then, of course, the hatat also required because it does have to do with purification. That is, it's the price that is paid for moving her from the unclean to the clean state and then to the holy state. Jesus pays the price for our moving from unclean to clean and then moving from clean to holy. I mentioned to someone last week that they, they asked me about this ahead of time and I talked to them about it a little bit and I said, do you remember the description of the Roman who stuck the spear in the side of Yeshua on the cross. What came out? What came out? Water and blood. Why did it make such a big deal out of the water? What was... Why was that? What was one of the names that Christ gave for himself? Living water. Okay. It is a principle. Water makes clean. Blood atones. Water does not atone and blood does not make clean. You're not washed by Jesus' blood to become clean. You're washed by his living water to become clean. You're washed by his blood to atone for sins. That's why we had to have both. Now, we also saw that a carefully orchestrated process had to occur to bring this new mother back to a state of cleanness and then to her restored state of holiness. Step one, waiting period, 40 or 80 days. Step two, a ritual bath, immersion in water. 
Okay. This brought her from the defiled state back of uncleanness back to a clean state. Now that she's clean, she's eligible to be made holy again. And to attain this holy status, she has to offer these three, if you would, sacrifices of atonement, the Ola, the Micha, and the Hatad. If the sacrifices are properly performed, she's consecrated, made acceptable to Yehovah, and now she's readmitted to the group, to the congregation of Israel as a holy person. So in my ladder of holiness analogy, she presumably enters her pregnancy on an upper rung in a state of holiness. Childbirth knocks her off that ladder down into a state of uncleanness. Now she has to work her way back up that ladder from unclean to clean and then from clean to holy. The stages of becoming holy works like that with us. First, while we begin life as clean, our sin nature inevitably puts us into unclean behaviors and thus we must come out from our uncleanness back to a clean state. St. Paul says in Ephesians 5.5 5, For this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person no covetous man who is an idolater have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or God. And then in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6.17 Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing and then I will receive you. That is what we hear Yeshua calling to us. And to, to make that decision that we're going to become a member of the kingdom of God, forsaking that which is against God, this removes us from the status of the world at large and joins us to Israel and her covenants. And as I've discussed with you at length, this is the true spiritual Israel, not the physical earthly Israel. And once we're cleansed by Yeshua, the source of living water, then we can be made holy and acceptable to God by his blood. Now since this is a spiritual matter, it all happens rather simultaneously for us. It's not as though we can actually discern these separate and distinct steps that we go from unclean to clean to holy, like we see in Leviticus, but the spiritual principle for the process is taught to us here in chapter 12 and in other places in the Torah. How can one go from unclean to holy is broken down into bite-sized chunks that we can see and understand, which I maintain is the primary purpose of Torah, to allow us to see and to conceptualize and to understand some infinite spiritual principles, chief among these of being what sin and what holiness is, done in a way that our finite fleshly minds can accept it. Now, don't ask me how all this happens in each individual or when the exact moment is that we move from unclean to clean and then from clean to holy. I suspect it's a little bit different for each individual, but maybe not. But the process has always been the same. And the need for a blood sacrifice to take us from the merely clean to the sanctified and holy is required just as it always has been that way. 
In the time before Christ, it was a series of specific animal sacrifices performed again and again to carry out this process. Since the advent of Yeshua, it's his blood that's required, not the blood of animals. And of major importance and good news for us is that there is no more holiness ladder to climb, fall off, and start climbing back up again. Okay. A believer remains holy and generally speaking, generally speaking, will not attain a state of uncleanness and purity even if we should come into contact with uncleanness. Now, we most certainly can be in a state of rebellion Okay, which is basically a sustained time of disobedience to God. But even that doesn't necessarily make us unclean, or more importantly, we don't necessarily use our, lose our holiness status, but maybe it can lead to us losing it. Let us never forget, though, that while disobedience does not generally cost us salvation, it is most certainly an important matter to the Lord. If we love him, why would we ever want to be disobedient? It's like Paul says in Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning some more so that the amount of grace over us can increase? And while we're going to cover aspects of the process of becoming clean from a state of uncleanness at a later time, I want to point out something one more time before we move on. Because this is so key. You'll read the New Testament differently. Water is the purifying agent. Blood is the atoning agent. Okay. That does it as concerns impurity in childbirth. Leviticus 13 and then on to 14 will now address another matter of ritual impurity that happens as a result of skin diseases. And as odd as it may seem, these chapters are actually going to even address so-called skin diseases of inanimate objects, of clothing, of houses. So, get out your Bibles, and we're going to start reading Leviticus chapter 13. We're only going to read the first eight verses. Leviticus chapter 13 first 8 verses Adonai said to Moshe and Aharon if someone develops on his skin a swelling, scab or bright spot which could develop into the diseased Sarat he is to be brought to Aharon the Kohen or to one of his sons who are priests the priest is to examine the sore on his skin. If the hair in the sore has turned white and the sore appears to go deep into the skin, it is sarat. And after examining him, the priest is to, to declare him unclean. If the bright spot on his skin is white, but it does not appear to go deep into his skin and his hair has not turned white, then the priest is to isolate him for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine him again. And if the sore appears the same as before, and it has not spread on the skin, then the priest is to isolate him for seven more days. 
And on the seventh day the priest is to examine him again, and if the sore has faded and hasn't spread on the skin, then the priest is to declare him clean. It's only a scab, so he's to wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scab spreads further on the skin after he's been examined by the priest and declared clean, he is to let himself be examined yet again by the priest. The priest will examine him, and if he sees that the scab has spread on his skin, then the priest will declare him unclean. It is Sarat. Okay. Chapters 13 and 14 are pretty lengthy, and they're complex, and they're full of very detailed instructions. So we're going to break this thing up into some bite-sized chunks that we can digest a little easier. And chapter 13, for the first 46 verses, will deal with skin diseases on humans. Then, from verses 47 to 58, it's going to deal with so-called skin diseases on leathers and fabrics. Then when we get to chapter 14, we're going to deal with skin diseases on houses. Now, for our purposes, we're going to break this up into even yet smaller pieces beginning in the first eight verses of chapter 13 because here we get instructions for the priests on how to determine whether the general symptoms of the patient are of a serious nature or just something transitory that's not so serious and probably will heal without further problem to the afflicted person and presents no danger to his community. Well, here we see the priests taking on a new role that adds to their already existing list of duties as officiators of rituals and guardians of Jehovah's holiness and as teachers of the law. Their new role kind of has a medical aspect to it. Because that now they're going to have to diagnose skin disease and decide whether the person ought to be quarantined or not. And they have to also decide when the disease is fully healed and the person can be allowed back into society. Later on, the priest will also prescribe and preside over very elaborate purification rituals. Now, recall that Sarat was thought to be an outward manifestation of a person's inward spiritual condition. That certain skin diseases, not all skin diseases were the Lord's way of making your secretly inward condition of uncleanness that up to now has only been known to him made visible for everybody to see. Therefore, the thing for us to grasp is that the priests did not take on the role of doctors. They didn't become healers. They didn't tell a person how to get rid of the skin disease from, from a medical aspect. They didn't encant some prayer over them. They didn't give them a potion or a cure or a medicine or a balm to alleviate the itching or the bleeding or the pain. They didn't instruct the afflicted in how to deal with their skin disease per se. Rather, their job was simply to determine if that person indeed had a skin disease, if so, in what general category it fell, and whether or not that person needed to be isolated from the group. And of course, when, if ever, that person could rejoin his community and then what steps, from a ritual standpoint, was needed for that to happen. Actually, this new role was just an extension of one they already had been assigned. It says the priest's job was to distinguish 
between the clean and the unclean. It's one of their primary duties. Well, what is translated generally as a skin disease in the Bible is in Hebrew, Sarat. Unfortunately, most Bibles will often inject the term leprosy for Sarat. And that is simply not the case. That's incorrect. Leprosy, or what today is more commonly called Hansen's disease in the medical community, is not at all what's being described in Leviticus. I hate to be the one to destroy yet another stereotyped and mistaken scene from a lot of Bible movies, but leprosy was very rare. In Egypt, there is no evidence from the vast amounts of ancient public records or even from the thousands of skeletons and mummies that have been dug up and examined that true leprosy even showed its ugly head in Egypt before the 5th century A.D. And while there is evidence it existed in Canaan and in the area of Palestine during the Israelites' time there, it was rare. So this mental picture of large leper colonies with a lot of people exiled there is just not so. And neither did a priest often encounter somebody with leprosy. Now this comes from an error in understanding the New Testament Greek word lepra, which was chosen to translate the Hebrew word serap. Lepra was eventually Englishized to leprosy, and leprosy, of course, was a dreaded disease. So leprosy, I mean, leprosy is so dramatically grotesque in its appearance and quite deadly in its outcome. It made a great fodder for biblical stories and sermons. So the translation of Sarat to mean leprosy stuck, even though the theological as well as medical communities long ago determined that what was being referred to here in the Bible had nothing to do with leprosy. Now, interestingly, the Greeks did have a precise word for what we commonly think of as leprosy, or more accurately, Hansen's disease, elephantiasis. And naturally, you won't find the Greek word elephantiasis in the New Testament because that's not what it was. Now, further, Sarat is not a specific disease, but rather it's a general term for a whole range of of skin diseases and skin abnormalities which by the law renders a person ritually impure. Now, the current general consensus is that the the described skin diseases in Leviticus more resemble psoriasis, favus, and leucoderma. Psoriasis is a non-contagious flakiness of the skin that can involve anywhere from a very small patch of skin to practically the entire body. I mean, the scales of psoriasis are usually a kind of a shiny, whitish color, but if one scratches them off because of the persistent itching, um, underlying the cells are more reddish in color. For all practical purposes, psoriasis is not something that affects the overall health of the person, nor is it considered fatal, but a serious case of it can be very debilitating. Favus, though, is more serious. It's a fungus that attacks hairy areas of the body, normally only the scalp. Favus is quite contagious, 
because it affects the deepest layers of the skin as well as the hair follicles and so it can leave permanent disfigurement. Leucoderma is a skin disease that causes the skin to lose its natural color and to turn white. It usually occurs in patches and only affects the pigment which is located in the top layers of skin. Now this list is not exhaustive. But it gives us a pretty good idea of what Surat looked like. And what we see from this is that these various forms of Surat were generally not fatal, nor usually damaging to the patient's overall health, as leprosy certainly is. Usually these are nuisance skin diseases, although some of them could last for a lifetime. And I don't want to minimize the affliction as I know that some of these diseases bring an intense itching and some amount of pain that can drive people crazy. And, and, and we should not think that the physical scarring and deformities that some of these diseases caused, though usually not major, were any less important to the psyche of those ancient Hebrews than they are to us today. So while there are most definitely is a medical aspect to God's rules concerning Sarat, it's not really about protecting the community from deadly diseases because Surat generally weren't deadly diseases. It was about ritual purity. The consequences of Surat were devastating in other ways. A person who is declared unclean from Surat is put outside the camp, away from his family and society. And depending on the condition perhaps he or she will be banished for life. And this banishment is not just from a spouse or children or from a person's tribe. This person is separated from God. He's unclean. He's impure. He's unfit for life in God's holy community and therefore unfit for acceptance by Yehovah. If a priest contracted Surat, he lost his lofty status as a special servant to God in addition to suffering the pain and humiliation of being sent outside the camp. So we need to grasp the Hebrews' dread of Surat focused on the defilement that it brought on and the prescribed separation from Yehovah and from the people of God that resulted. That was the issue. Now imagine, my Christian friends, if one day you woke up with a scaly patch on your arm, you went to your pastor or your rabbi, and he determined it was psoriasis, and you were told never to come back. That you had to leave your family. You had to leave your community. That you were excommunicated from the family of God that you have lost your status of sanctified and saved, and that unless that psoriasis went away, excommunicated would be your permanent status right up to death. Your relationship with God is ended, and you don't have any recourse. Your only hope is if it miraculously disappears. Of course, thanks to Jesus Christ, believers don't have to fear this. But this was the case with the Hebrews before Yeshua. Scary, terrible, devastating, 
beyond words, harsh. I mean, how can we view this any other way? This was not rabbinical tradition I'm talking about here. This is God's ordained instruction and command. Being unclean is a very serious spiritual matter. It has not ceased to be a very serious spiritual matter. Because it's a threat to holiness. It's the opposite of holiness. We have to always remember that God is going to protect His holiness at any cost. And of this we're reminded time and time again in Scripture. If Jehovah had to destroy the whole universe to protect His holiness from uncleanness, He would. And He'd be justified in doing it. And in fact, we're told in Revelation that that's exactly what He's going to do. We'll talk about this some more next week.